Uh, if you'll pardon me, that was from an uh, inattentiveness on my part. Uh, we'll actually be turning uh, to Genesis chapter 17, which you'll find on page uh, 11 uh, if you're using uh, the church Bibles. Page 11, Genesis 17, and we'll read just those first 14 verses of chapter 17. Congregation of Lord Jesus Christ, hear now the word of the Lord as it is read for you in this evening. Now when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham or to Abram and said to him, "I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly." Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, "Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations." No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout your generations. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant." Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. So far, the reading of our Lord's holy word. I draw your attention, especially to verse 7, which will be our sermon text for this evening. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Let's pray for the Lord's uh, blessing upon our time in his word. Gracious God, uh, we do not live by bread alone, Lord, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Lord, make us hungry for this heavenly food that it might uh, nourish us today in the ways of eternal life, that it would uh, fill us each time we hear us, satisfy us, Lord, because of the content of that bread of life, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you'll turn with me in the back of your Trinity Psalter hymnals to the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, page 882, we'll be reading from Lord's Day 25 in the Heidelberg Catechism. And after going through several Lord's Days uh, previous of this, of speaking about the topic of faith, we come now to the matter of where does that faith come from? How does God sustain that faith? So we have here in questions 65 to 68, the topic of the Lord's means of grace. 
Uh, and I will read the uh, question in the bold-faced uh, text, if you'll please supply the answer with the plain-faced text. It's question 65. Christian, it is by faith alone that we share in Christ and all his benefits. Where, then, does that faith come from? The Holy Spirit works it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the use of the Holy Sacraments. Well, what are sacraments? Sacraments are visible, holy signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by our use of them, he might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel and seal that promise. And this is God's gospel promise. He grants us forgiveness of sins, eternal life by grace because of Christ's one sacrifice accomplished on the cross. Are both the word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Yes, indeed. The Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and confirms by the holy sacraments that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. How many sacraments did Christ institute in the New Testament? Two, holy baptism and the holy supper. Now, congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe it's safe to say that we live in a world of skepticism, a world that's suspicious of just about everything said. You know, people want proof of truth. In our own time, there's uh, something uh, that's referred to as fake news. Uh, perhaps you know of it. When some people on social media come across uh, some news article or a post, they wait for, they wait for other people called uh, fact-checkers to investigate the claim that the post had made, the, the claim, uh, to check and investigate if that news is really true, and to then uh, either affirm or deny it with science, statistics, context, or logic. And while the terms uh, fake news and fact-checking are new in uh, this generation, the basic idea really isn't. You know, people have always wanted signs and guarantees of truth. And this includes Christians. You know, during difficult seasons of life, we sometimes ask for God to give us a sign, don't we? If you get diagnosed with a disease, you may want God to show you some sign that he hasn't abandoned you. When you're stressed or anxious or depressed, you want some confirmation of his love. When you doubt or when you're tempted or when you sin against him, you want assurance that when you repent, you are truly forgiven and that he is cleansing you. And we're not alone in this. We find this all throughout scripture. God promised Abraham several times that he would establish his covenant with him and, and give him offsprings. And yet Abraham asks, how am I to know? God promised to Moses, go into the land, the land of promise, and I will send my angel ahead. But Moses said, if we are your people, if we have your favor, then show me your glory. God announced to Gideon, the judge, several times, I shall be with you when you go out to drive the Midians out from the, the Midianites out from the land. But Gideon said, give me a sign. The disciples of Jesus, they had said, he is risen. 
But Thomas said, unless I see, I will never believe. It's constant. Those are just a few examples of very, very, very many that we have throughout Scripture. And God's people are slow to believe. We want proof of of gospel truth because even though we have faith, that faith is not yet perfect. We are weak men. We so quickly forget God's word. But the thing is that our God knows that we are weak. He knows that we are dust. He knows our frame. And in his grace, he builds us up. He causes us to hear the gospel again and again. And he has given his church signs and guarantees of his word. This evening, we're going to be considering these graces of God, focusing especially on questions 66 and 67. Our theme this evening, as you'll see in your bulletin handout, is that the sacraments strengthen our faith by word and spirit. And we're going to see this in three points. First, we have the promise of God. Second, the person and work of Christ. And third, the power of the Holy Spirit. Now this this first point, the promise of God. Question and answer 66 tells us what sacraments are and why we have them. So what they are. Sacraments are visible holy signs and seals. And they were instituted by God. And then it tells us why. So that by our use of them, he might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel and seal that promise. Now, why do you suppose we need to understand the gospel more clearly? You know, aren't I already saved? I believe, after all. Even though believers are truly justified by the work of Christ through faith alone, we are still tempted and do actually sin, do we not? We confess that we do not serve God with sufficient zeal. We struggle daily with the weakness of our faith and struggle against the evil lusts of our flesh, as our form for the Lord's Supper says. It's a reality. We have faith, but in this life it is imperfect. Now, knowing this, God gives us a treasure of heavenly grace in the preaching of his word. He has us continually hear this gospel promise. And yet our natural ears are our natural ears are often inattentive. Sometimes just we might want to try so hard, but our minds wander during the sermon. And this isn't a flaw of the gospel. And it's not a flaw necessarily of even preaching itself, but it is a flaw of our hearts. In this life, we continue to struggle against our own sinfulness and our flesh. And so because of this, we struggle to hear, we struggle to believe, and struggle to obey. And no amount of willpower and determination will cause our hearts to be humbled and to yearn after these things of God. It's like Paul says in Romans 7, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And so Paul asks, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver us from the sin that's still in us? Well, we're in, we're in need, a big need of divine grace. We need God to strengthen our weak faith. And God is mindful of our crudeness 
He knows our recklessness and our weakness, as the Belgian Confession, Article 33 says. It's for this reason, our crudeness, our weakness, God reinforces the preaching of the word by appealing even to our senses. He adds the sacraments as visible, tangible tokens of his grace, signs of his grace. In their symbols, we actually do feel the cool, refreshing water of his mercy. We see it poured out overhead. We take in our hand and in our mouth the bread of his body and the wine of his shed blood. And we receive them with the promise of his word, I shall be your God to you and your offspring. This is my body broken for you. This is the cup of the new covenant. But question 66 also points out a few lines down that the sacraments, they're not only signs. They're not just symbols of his promises. They're also seals. They're markers that God uses to guarantee that he will completely save us. Now, where do we get these terms, signs and seals? Are we just getting you know, speculative and academic, making up some theological terms? You know, I can see that they're signs or symbols, but seals? Guarantees? Well, the language of sign and seal is actually biblical, coming from Romans chapter 4, verse 11. There Paul says that Abraham received the sign of circumcision a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And so then, Abraham is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. Now, did you catch that, what Paul's saying there? Abraham had grace and faith first, and then God added the command to be circumcised. We'll come back to Abraham in in just a moment with our scripture reading. But right now, note, note from all this. God gives these visible, holy signs and seals to confirm that he is working an invisible grace in us. It's a spiritual work beyond our natural eyes. And in that spiritual work, he is guaranteeing his promises are real. Now, for something to be holy, do you remember what that word is? Holy. It means that God sets something apart, to set apart something from their being ordinary and even familiar things in this world. Things like circumcision. And what does he set them apart for? For divine use. Let's put this in terms of the church's sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. We don't physically see Jesus' blood pouring over us and washing away our sin. But we do see the waters of baptism and every time they're poured out over someone with a covenant pledge that says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. We don't see Christ's broken body on the cross and his shed blood. But we're told in the gospel that we do take in our hands and mouth the bread and wine that point us toward his body and blood that was given for us. So truly, the sacraments are signs, pointers, and seals, covenant confirmations of God's promise of grace and salvation in Christ. And all of it is not because your pastor works some magic formula with these things. No, the signs and the seals, they're true because the word of God has declared their truths to us. And their truths are received in faith alone. Now, here we must understand this, this, this relationship between faith and grace. In Ephesians 2.7, Paul says that faith is not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. 
He explains further in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing, by the preaching of the word of God through the Spirit. In 2 Thessalonians 1.3 says that faith is also something that grows. So, well, if, if the gift of faith comes by the word of God through the Spirit, then the growth of our faith also has to be by the word of God through the Spirit. Doesn't it? It's God's invisible grace that supplies, that, that strengthens and brings our faith to its perfection and glory. It is of God from beginning to last. And you see, in the, the ministry of the word, along with this, the administration of the sacraments, are the way God grows us in faith, or what we call his means of grace. He gifts and grows our faith by the continued preaching of the word and by adding signs and seals to reinforce the word. And this is what Paul was speaking of with Abraham. Faith came first, then the sign and seal to sustain that faith. Now what Paul was referencing was from Genesis 17, what we had read in our scripture reading. We'll consider here this Genesis 17, verse 7 and onwards. There God gives the covenant promise. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And then God adds that sign and seal. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Why was this sign that God gave to Abraham, why was this the sign? Well, circumcision... It wasn't just some random symbol that God used to remind his people of his promise to be their God. It had a purpose. And remember what we, what we brought up when we, would, what we said when we brought up Romans 4.11. God gives these visible holy signs and these seals in order to confirm his invisible grace at work in us. That spiritual work beyond our natural eyes. There is a reality that God is working in us. What was the holy reality that the sign of circumcision pointed to? What was being sealed to Abraham? Circumcision, it was a bloody sign. The cutting off and, and discarding of the unclean foreskin represented God setting apart his people from the unclean pagans. The reality of circumcision, though, was Christ's own bloody sacrifice. It was Christ who was cut off by his own ethnic people so that many nations, even unclean Gentiles, would be set apart as God's covenant people through a circumcision not of the flesh, but a circumcision of the heart. Circumcision was a sign for the heart that I shall be your God and you shall be my people. And that's because of Jesus Christ, who was the bloody reality of the bloody sign and seal. See, God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 17.7 was the preaching of the word of Christ, the gospel of our salvation. And because Abraham's faith was imperfect, God added a visible confirmation of the promise of his grace at work in his heart. But if you were to look at Genesis 17, verse 14, though, You'll see that along with the promise, he also gives a warning. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. 
See, God's holy signs and seals are not to be neglected because they're of grace. And God's grace isn't to be neglected or twisted in meaning and in purpose. They're to be used by his people in humility, by faith, for faith, because of our weaknesses and because of our failures. So congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we see the water poured out over someone's head, and when we, when we partake of the bread and wine, the gospel is being proclaimed to us. It's being proclaimed that God keeps his promise of grace. And he does this because of the person and work of Christ, in whom we alone have faith and are saved. And this is our second point, this person and work of Christ. If you'll look at a question answer 67 now, the question asks, are both the word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Uh, you notice that word both. Both word and sacrament have the same purpose. They're pointing to the Savior. Same content. As, as one theologian points out, the content of the word of God and the sacraments are identical. Christ and all of his benefits. There is no benefit that is not also received in faith alone in the sacrament from the word. But the difference between them, there is a difference, is in the way that they are given. The preached word is heard and is the basis of the sacraments, which are seen. The difference is one is heard, the other is seen. And this is why you may sometimes hear a Reformed theologian or a preacher speak of the sacrament as the visible word. But we do need to make sure we understand this correctly. Because there is no sacrament without the word and spirit. We had said earlier, these aren't just some rituals that are performed in order to expect some magical effect. You know, the sacraments in and of themselves do not give grace. Only God gives grace. But neither do they themselves create faith. As question answer 65 said, Faith is by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, by means of the preaching of the Holy Gospel. The Holy Spirit is the creator of faith. It is God who gives grace. The sacraments then are for reinforcing our wholehearted trust, our, our true faith in the promise of the covenant. Reinforce our faith. So in other words, they're signs and seals of the good news of the person and work of Christ. See, just like that sign and seal of circumcision was added to the word of promise spoken to Abraham, the new covenant sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper confirm the reality of Christ, the very object of faith of, of all believers, believers of all times and places. It's all about Jesus Christ. It all points to Jesus Christ. It is Christ alone by whom we are saved. We must always keep that in the center of our mind. It is Christ who was given. Paul speaks of this very thing in several places. In Ephesians 5.26, he says that Christ loved the church and gave himself to her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. It's Christ who's cleansing his own church. And though Paul draws upon the image of, of, of washing with water, he's not speaking of baptism here but a washing by the word, or even in Greek, a washing by the promise, the proclamation. 
Christ himself makes us holy and cleanses us because he is the word. He is the proclamation. He is the gospel. Similarly, uh, similarly in Romans 2, verses 28 to 29, Paul uses the imagery of circumcision to explain that a sacrament is useless without the inward reality of the gospel. The sacrament is empty without the gospel. A man is not a Jew, says Paul, if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Likewise, Colossians 2, verses 11 to 12. In him you were also circumcised, in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. So this meant that all along, even in the Old Testament, true circumcision, the real cutting off of our sinful nature was a work done on the heart by the Spirit of Christ, while the cutting of flesh was the outward sign pointing to what God was doing. Pointing to Jesus. And baptism works the same way. In baptism, we are given that beautiful picture of that washing away of sin. But as we have said, the actual water does not wash away our sin. It doesn't actually wash our hearts. It is poured over our heads. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can reach our hearts. And yet, when we are baptized with water, we have no reason to doubt that Christ's blood has, in fact, covered us. And by that blood, we are baptized into his body of death. And we arise in his body of the church. Baptism, in its reality, is an initiation into the people of God. It's an initiation into the covenant membership. That the promise is for you and all who are far off. That I shall be your God and you shall be my people. By faith in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment and content of the gospel promise, we are members of his body. And he goes beyond that. He further assures us of this in the the Lord's Supper, nourishing the body, his own body, by faith, for faith. And this is the sign and seal of participation in Christ, the Lord's Supper. We participate in him. We're united in him and to one another by the Spirit. While at the same time, we're also being set apart from this world as witnesses of the Lord. So the bread and wine, their spiritual food and their spiritual drink received by faith, the hand and mouth of our souls. It is by faith that we partake of Christ. It's by faith that we have that confirmation, that reality that is proclaimed to us in the gospel. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's how real God's promise is for his people. As though we can touch it, as though we can taste it. As though it's waters that grace pours over our heads. By faith, because of the work of God, we are bound to the very person and work that they signify. We are bound to Christ. We are bound to Christ's body broken for me. Christ's blood shed for me. And apart from him, I am nothing. Apart from him, there is no meaning in those sacraments. So we must take care to understand this, lest we abuse the means of grace. Jesus Christ is its content. 
The sacraments are these visible signs and seals. They're promises and confirmations that strengthen and focus our faith upon the person and work of Christ. So all of this, in short, they are visible tokens of the invisible grace of the gospel. The preaching of the word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper are means of grace that God uses to tend to our weaknesses. We want to clarify here now in our, in our third point, the power of the Holy Spirit that is at work in the means of grace. What is the Holy Spirit's role in the word and the sacraments? What is he doing? So we hear of this, this, this work that he's doing in question 65, in answer 65, the Holy Spirit works in our hearts. Well, the Holy Spirit is is the one who works the reality of grace in the preaching, the signs and the seals. Romans 1 verse 16 says, The gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel of Christ is the power of God. That power of God is the Holy Spirit. But faith, believing, comes by hearing. Faith is not your own doing, but is a gift of God. Well, Lord's Day 25 reminds us that it is the Holy Spirit who works the gift of faith in our hearts, teaching us in the gospel. And because it is the Spirit who works grace through the word, he must also be the power at work in the sacraments. In the second point, we had said that the word and sacrament promise the same thing, the same content. And so receiving the sacraments is to receive Christ himself. And this is because of his power. This is because by his power, the Spirit binds us to Christ, the anchor of our salvation. It is the Spirit's work uniting us to our Savior. Maybe if we we could change metaphors here. Think of Christ here as the fountain, the source of living water. The Spirit acts in his work as a a canal or a waterway that carries the fountain's life-giving water to us. Our faith is unfilled and used to draw up this life-giving water. You see, the Spirit unites us to Christ, carries his blessings and benefits to us, and by faith, we are partakers of grace. See, without the, the power of the Spirit, we have no Savior. Without the power of the Spirit, there is no union. There is no faith. There is no belief. The preached word falls on deaf ears. The baptismal font in the Lord's table would be empty of grace because the hand and mouth of the soul are shut in rejection of the good news. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens the heart to be receptive to the things of God, who opens the ears to hear, who gives us that hunger and that thirst to come to the table, to come to the font. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. He is working the reality of grace in the word, the preaching of the word, in baptism, and in the Lord's Supper. In this, there's also an obligation, though, that comes with the means of grace. We're to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to believe in him as our only salvation and righteousness. Your obligation in holy baptism is that you are called to profess Christ and you're called to set apart your whole life to love God, to worship him and serve him, to give yourself as an offering of thanksgiving. The Spirit does a holy work in you. It is a holy work 
that you may do holy works, which God has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them in confirmation to Jesus Christ. These are holy works of love, holy works of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And that you put to death all works of the flesh. That is your obligation. But we must trust in God and by his Holy Spirit to do so. Likewise, for the Holy Supper, the believer is obligated to, to partake of it only in a worthy manner. A holy manner. On one hand, this means that you must examine your hearts, considering the conduct of your life, confessing your sins, turning from them, knowing it is only by grace alone that you're saved. For all who live in rebellion against God and in unbelief, this holy food and drink will bring you only further condemnation. If you do not yet confess Jesus Christ and seek to live under his gracious reign, you're obligated to to abstain. On the other hand, partaking of the supper in a holy manner, also means that you're obligated to come to the table in confidence and joy. Do you come to that table with that joy? Do you come knowing that by faith, not in your own merits, but in Christ's righteousness, we do repent of our sins, and we take and we eat in celebration? As our form says, For the sacrament, do not allow the weakness of your faith or your failures in the Christian life to keep you from this table. For it is given to us because of our weakness, because of our failures, in order to increase our faith by feeding us with the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. For the supper is a gift of grace. It's for our peace with God and our assurance that he shall complete the good work which he has begun in us. With such confidence... We can then go out with thanksgiving to live in obedience to him. You're obligated to go to the table in joy. And with joy and thanksgiving live for him because of the wondrous things he does. The wondrous things he has done. The congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacraments have grace to strengthen us only by spirit and word. The means of grace are not for those who think that they deserve to receive them or, or who think that they have earned the right to partake. They're not just some routine that we go through, just some ritual that we do in, in church. No, they are for grace. They are for miserable sinners. They're for unworthy people summoned by the power of God through the gospel to repent and believe. They're for us to assemble to the sanctuary as beggars, beggars all, weary and needy wholeheartedly trusting in the word of the Savior. We come here hungry for his spirit of grace, knowing by the gospel that he alone can nourish and satisfy the soul. And we doubt, we are tempted, and we still sin, but his word tells us to turn from sin, to seek refuge in his son for his forgiveness, walk after him in the way of righteousness. And by spirit and word, his promise and assurance is given in order to strengthen us in our weakness. He proclaims this to us again and again and again. Proclaims it to our ear, to our sight, but especially to our hearts. He says, I shall be your God and you shall be my people. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Praise our Heavenly Father, from whom all blessings flow. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, Lord, your mercy and your compassion to us are 
Lord, are so abundant. Lord, your, your ways in showing your grace and your goodness, Lord, are so various and many. And that we have not only the word once proclaimed to us, but constantly. Lord, we ask that in your grace you would sustain us, that you would nourish our faith. Lord, that, we would give, or that you would give us a desire to praise you, to live for you, or to worship you. But also to have confidence and to take heart. Lord, that truly you have done what you had said in Jesus Christ. In forgiving us our sins and even gifting us his righteousness. Whereas we have none ourselves. Lord, we ask that you would impress these things upon our hearts by your Holy Spirit. That we might reflect upon them and meditate upon them in this week. Lord, in this interval before returning to your house for our nourishment amongst the assembly. Here is we ask, Lord, for the sake of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.